Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times, I'm Sean McKenna. Japan prides itself on several qualities. There are four seasons. Sure, there are four seasons everywhere in the world, but here they're really special. No, not sold? Okay. How about crime? Japan is consistently ranked as one of the safest countries in the world. And considering the size of the population, that's a pretty impressive flex. But after 20 years of falling, the crime rate in Japan has begun to rise. What's behind this sudden turn? We'll talk to Japan Times staff writer Alex K.T. Martin about it later on in the show. First, though, economy writer Elizabeth Beattie is back from the city of Niigata, where she attended the G7 finance minister's meeting. The meet was one of several taking place in the run-up to the Group of Seven Summit in Hiroshima this weekend, and we'll get a rundown of what happened from Elizabeth right after the swell of 4L's lovely theme tune. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome back to Tokyo, and welcome back to Deep Dive. Thanks, Sean. First off, how was the G7 finance minister's meeting? It was very interesting. There's uh, definitely a sense of momentum around the event. You have these big world leaders kind of jetting in and out of Niigata to discuss these major economic issues. But as media, we only see a portion of the discussion. So we were kind of hungrily looking for any detail. How do you do that? Um, you try to try to make friends with people <laughs> and be um, approachable and talk to sources as much as possible. Okay. So what would you say was the big takeaway or takeaways from the meeting itself? I think one of the big takeaways was that political issues are going to continue to shape economic talks. Russia's invasion into Ukraine was was a big theme uh, and sanction evasion was a was an area of concern. Um, over the course of the meeting. Also, there was discussion about climate change and supply chains and, of course, the U.S. debt ceiling talks. So all these really big political issues that we were seeing in the news cycle, they kind of dominated the meetings in a sense. Uh, If we look at past G7 finance ministers and central bankers' communiques, they're a lot more focused on financial tools, financial regulations and taxation frameworks, whereas now we're really seeing those political issues really... uh, really more in focus and really overshadowing some of those discussions. Hmm. Were there any important moments directly involving Japan at the Niigata Summit? Well, Japan was playing host to the event, so any moves from Japan were definitely under the magnifying glass. Uh, Something which uh, came up during the press briefing afterwards was the Japanese finance minister declining to mention China by name when discussing supply chains, and that was viewed by some as emissions. And the reason why that's significant is China is the largest trading partner for many major economies, and it's documented as increasingly using economic coercion as a tactic, so using its economic might. And Japan sidestepping mention of China felt quite significant, although it's expected to be called out more explicitly in the upcoming Hiroshima summit. Right. Finally, what was security like in Niigata? Can you give anyone living in Hiroshima a sense of how security might affect them this weekend? I would say security was quite pronounced. We had seen security be a bit of a talking point in the lead up to these G7 events, uh, particularly following the early attack on Prime Minister Kishida. Hmm. So when I arrived by Shinkansen, rubbish bins were kind of covered up in an attempt to mitigate, I gather, against bomb threats. Mm. And as soon as I exited the station, I could see clusters of police officers everywhere. There was a large number of uh, officers around forming roadblocks across various points, particularly in the areas where meetings were being held. Mm. So uh, when I arrived at the venue and gained my press pass, 
I then basically had to walk through a similar setup to a, an airport kind of scanner. But that was only because I was going into an event where officials were. Uh, basically, once I had a press pass, it was fairly easy to, to navigate. But the finance minister, Shinichi Suzuki, did thank the city of Niigata for playing host to the event. And he did mention that uh, traffic congestion had been had been a bit of a symptom. So uh, something to keep in mind is maybe be wary of the size of the bags you're carrying because oh. that's also a, a point of consideration and uh, maybe just factor in some extra travel time. Right. So good tips. Elizabeth Beattie, thanks for stopping by Deep Dive. Thanks, Sean. You can read more of Elizabeth's reporting and analysis on the G7 and other financial topics at japantimes.co.jp. When we come back, we'll be talking about crime. Every Friday, the Japan Times runs a feature about language for our bilingual page. We get translators and Japanese language professors to write about stuff like which prepositions will help you sound more natural when speaking, or buzzwords, or coverage of the kanji of the year event in December. The page does well in part because Japanese teachers seem to read it so they can use it to teach private lessons. I suspect this because if we ever make a mistake, Japanese teachers are usually the first to tell us about it. One of our news desk editors, Tarasu Takahashi, also writes for the section from time to time. His approach to it tends to be that he'll see a Japanese term popping up in the news more and more, and he'll want to explain it to the readership. A while back, he wrote something on Yami Baito. Here's Tarasu telling us what it means. So, Yami Baito, the term is a combination of Yami, which means dark, and Baito, which means part-time job. That word, Baito, actually comes from the German verb Arbeiten, which means to work. In Japan, though, Baito is used to describe a part-time job. So the piece that Tarasu wrote was about how people recruiting for these yami baito, or dark part-time jobs, were using other Japanese linguistic codes to signal what the jobs were about. Like the term tataki okosu, which means to get someone out of bed. That was being used as a stand-in to mean robberies, because that might be what you'd do if you want to rob someone. You'd get them out of bed in the middle of the night. The Japanese media has done a number of stories in which a reporter will go undercover and follow Yami Baito post. Inevitably, the story ends with the reporter revealing who they are, and the recruiter saying they're desperate to get out of the situation they're in. One quote I found from my bilingual piece was from a person caught up in these Yami Baito robberies who said they were glad they had been caught, since maybe now they'd be able to cut ties with the gang that employed them. So who are the employers then? We got a glimpse of two such characters after they were caught running a robbery ring out of a prison in the Philippines. The so-called Luffy robberies are named after the alleged mastermind who went by the moniker Luffy, named after the main character from the One Piece manga. And he, or they, are said to have sent instructions over a smartphone through the encrypted messaging app Telegram. Drivers were reportedly paid 800,000 yen, which is about $6,150 US, and robbers were paid 1 million yen, which is about 7370 per job. The Luffy robberies are thought to have been going on for a few years, and they've been linked to more than 50 cases of home invasion in Japan. In January, however, one of those robberies turned fatal. Four men between the ages of 19 and 52 have been arrested in connection to the robbery and murder of 90-year-old Kinio Oshio in the city of Komai in western Tokyo. The police later found the cars they'd rented with a smartphone inside one of them that had the messages from someone known as Kim, who is thought to be the alias of one of the Japanese nationals in that Philippines prison. 
The Luffy case has naturally caught the attention of the media as it carries all the hallmarks of a solid crime story. There's a teenage suspect, an elderly victim, social media, and a dash of international intrigue. And then just last week, the country was glued to their social media feeds watching video of a brazen daytime robbery in Tokyo's posh Ginza district. Of the four suspects in that case, two were 19, one was 18, and the other one was 16. So, does Japan, a country that prides itself on being one of the safest countries in the world, have a crime problem? I'll be back after the break to talk about this with Japan Times staff writer Alex K.T. Martin. Alex, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thanks, Sean. So my first question is a big one. Is crime getting worse in Japan? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, yes, and that crime rates are on the rise, but no in the sense that they haven't come close to the peak they hit in 2002, when we saw around 2.73 million cases. Mm. But then it kept on decreasing until 2021, when we saw around 568,000 cases. And then last year, we saw the rise. It took us back up to uh, 601,000 cases or so. Okay, there's a lot I want to ask about in that statement. First of all, take us back to 2002. What was going on in Japan at that time? Well, during the late 1990s and the early 2000s, we uh, witnessed plenty of gruesome and ghastly crimes, including the, uh, the famous 1997 Kobe child murders. Mm. Um, there was the Wakayama curry poisoning of 1998. Uh, then another uh, famous family murder that happened in Tokyo, Setagaya Ward. This was in 2000. So the, there was a lot of uh, sort of uh, horrendous things going on that was making the headlines back then. Right. Um, however, uh, the same period also saw a surge in street crime, uh, as well as cases of burglary and uh, property damage. And these actually account for the majority of the crimes that were recorded back then. Right. So we hit a low in 2021 and then crime rates start moving up again. Do we know what caused this? So yeah, there was a dip that maybe came from the pandemic, obviously, uh, from people staying at home. Uh, but the rates that had been going down for about 20 years or so, so the pandemic doesn't have as direct an influence. What could be more telling, perhaps, is that the rise came as we came out of the pandemic, or at least the stronger elements of pandemic-era life, like staying at home, no late-night drinking spots being open, and stuff like that. Do you know how the police managed to get those rates down? Right. So in response, uh, more surveillance cameras were deployed, and uh, local crime prevention lectures and neighborhood patrol groups were organized. And in 2003, what's called the uh, Emergency Public Safety Program was launched. This is basically a wide-ranging uh, policy that beefed up police personnel. It also established uh, countermeasures for organized crime, uh, terrorism, and cybercrimes. Meanwhile, uh, Japan's population peaked in 2008 and began shrinking, while the proportion of those uh, 65 and over, uh, they continues to rise as the number of newborns slides. So the fall in crime, um, then, it basically can be explained to a certain extent with the uh, heightening of police presence and Japan's graying demographics. Right, so less people, less criminals, kind of. That's correct. Let's get into this part now. Your piece, Are Rising Crime Rates in Japan Cause for Alarm, it made the assertion that crime is up, but it's not so much the same kind of stuff that we maybe saw in 2002. That's correct. So a third of the cases reported last year were street crimes. Um, as pedestrian traffic started to increase uh, coming out of the pandemic era, you also saw a rise in the number of, uh, for example, bike thefts and mm -hmm. uh, cases of assault, which went up by, uh, I think, 20.9% and 9.5% uh, year on year, uh, respectively. Cases of assault will include things like bar fights, for example. But then you have what the uh, National Police Agency uh, refers to as serious crimes, uh, which jumped up 
by 8.1%, I think. This wasn't boosted by a rise in the number of homicides, but rather sexual and indecent assault. Uh, in fact, homicides were down slightly in 2022, and I think it was 853 cases. Hmm. Well, first of all, glad homicides were down, but this rise in sexual in and indecent assault, that's concerning. Over the course of the pandemic, we heard the term shadow pandemic being used. That refers to the notion that the stress of the pandemic would cause domestic abusers to act out more. And due to the lockdown, victims weren't able to escape their abusers. Did this shadow pandemic affect Japan? Yes, um, the same thing happened in Japan, actually. The number of domestic violence consultations rose by uh, 1,454 cases to a total of uh, 84,496 cases in 2022. Hmm. And that's a record high for the 19th consecutive year. Hmm. Um, the number of children referred to child consultation centers is in, in suspected cases of abuse. Uh, that also hit a record high of uh, 115,762, which is uh, up 7.1% from the previous year's number. So that's a quite a high bump, I think. Yeah. I also spoke to a Professor Fumiharu Yamagata, who is an expert on child welfare, and he pointed out that a lot of cases of child abuse comes from the child having to witness domestic violence and basically the psychological abuse that entails. Mm. He also mentioned that in many cases, the parents or perpetrators hide the abuse by presenting themselves on uh, especially social media in particular as living perfect lives. Hmm. Also, of the cases referred to these uh, centers, only 10% of domestic incidents and 1.8% of the child abuse incidents uh, result in arrest. So speaking of social media, uh, your article mentions that another type of crime that is on the rise is cybercrime. So that would be things like ransomware attacks and phishing scams. That's right. Uh, those rose by 160 to a total of 12,369 cases last year, which is a new record. Hmm. I spoke to one guy for my story who said he uh, fell for a cryptocurrency investment scam in early March after being approached by a woman on uh, social media. Did he say what social media network? Yeah, he did. Um, but he asked me not to sort of reveal uh, which one it was. Okay. Um, uh, but anyway, this guy is a doctor uh, and he transferred uh, nearly 1.5 million yen into a virtual currency exchange platform, but he couldn't withdraw those funds. Mm -hmm. He also says he still gets contacted by people trying to get him to invest more. So this is a continuing thing, seems like. So less high tech than the special fraud on social media are the cases of special fraud involving the good old fashioned telephone. Alex, can you explain to us what the ore ore sagi is? Right. So ore ore sagi, which translates to uh, it's me, it's me fraud. Uh -huh. um, it's been around for quite a while, at least over the past decade, I think. You'd see sign all over the place saying, uh, be careful of ore ore sagi. Yeah, I think I've seen those signs actually at convenience stores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if you go to a bank ATMs, they would definitely have a little poster saying like, you know, ore ore sagi ni chui. You know, right. be, beware of ore ore sagi, which is essentially... Uh, Targets mostly older people. They receive a phone call by a family member, perhaps a son or a daughter. They would say, Oredayo, Oredayo, it's me, it's me, without actually naming their names. Mm. And uh, whoever's on the other side of the phone call would assume that this person is their their family member. Right. And what happens is they would say, hey, you know, dad, you know, I, I'm in trouble. I got into a car accident and I owe the other guy, you know, uh, five million yen or something like that. Uh -huh. And I need you to sort of deposit this amount to this bank account uh, by 12 p.m. today. Right. 
or something like that. And, you know, whoever's on the other side of the call would, you know, be alarmed, you know, especially if this was a person they haven't contacted in quite a while. If it's like an estranged son or daughter, perhaps, okay. they would feel like, okay, okay, I got to do something. They would run to the ATM, deposit the money to this bank account, and which would end up going to them, it's <laughs> to, the, right. to the common. So it's like a fraud scheme that's been going on for quite a while. Um, and strangely, it hasn't decreased. Actually, I think it's uh, the number of these special fraud cases, um, Soared by twenty point eight percent in two thousand twenty-two. Oh wow! So yeah, and and over half, fifty-five point three percent, were attributed to the Odeo Desagi uh, fraud scheme. So it's been a thing, and it's still going strong. Right, right. Yeah. Why do you think this is still so common in Japan? I mean, I guess it's tied into what you were talking about earlier with the amount of elderly people. Yeah, definitely. So demographics is a huge reason behind this one. I think this particular phenomenon. Um, the number of uh, people over 65, um, it's approaching almost a third of the entire population. And I think another factor is that a lot of these older people, um, they live on their own alone and in, right. in small apartments, perhaps in Tokyo or elsewhere. So they're not in contact with their uh, immediate family members or son or daughters or uh, siblings um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So if they do re receive a call from someone sort of pretending to be their family members, I guess it's easier for them to be duped into believing that they're actually talking to their family members. So if I'm hearing what you're saying, I guess, you know, kind of the aging demographic has helped Japan kind of lower crime rates over the past 20 years. However, you know, that's now led to the idea that they're kind of prime marks to be victims of crime in this kind of like new age. That's correct. Yes. Um, and we can't forget that the, uh, I think the number of crimes uh, perpetrated by uh, the older generation or specifically those 65 and over, uh, these have been pretty high uh, over the past years. Right. So they're both victims and perpetrators, I guess. And it's a natural thing, you know, because if you have the third of the population uh, who are 65 and over, they're naturally going to be uh, uh, responsible for a larger pie of crime and victims. Right. So, yeah, I talked to uh, Wataru Zaitsu, who's an expert on uh, criminology, and uh, he sort of gave me a, a summary of what's happening. Um, he essentially said that, you know, so the fall in crime over the years uh, can be explained to a certain extent with the, uh, the heightening of police presence that I mentioned before and uh, Japan's graying demographics, mm -hmm. so things that you mentioned. Okay. So he also added that Japan's police forces, uh, they need to adapt to this new era of digital crime, uh, like the cyber currency frauds, as well as the type of crime that rose in the pandemic, like uh, domestic and child abuse. And looking ahead, or actually this is already happening at this moment, but I think he said that the trend that he really notices that stands out right now is how uh, crime is now not so much out in the open, but happens inside, as in uh, where people can't really see them uh, either online or inside homes where child abuse or domestic violence cases happen. So I think this is one trend that he's noticing over the past years. That's interesting because it seems like there have been a few high-profile cases recently that have been very out in the open. And I'm thinking of those like alleged teenage robbers in Ginza last week. Uh, they were all over social media. Or the two recent attacks on prime ministers, one of them being Shinzo Abe, who you know passed away in that attack, and the other one who's Fumio Kishida. It's sort of too early to tell whether this is going to be a trend or if it's a one-off phenomenon. Um, I mean, the assassination attempts and the assassination and the burglaries are two different things. So I think it's sort of hard to sort of uh, combine them into one single phenomenon sure. to sort yeah. of uh, 
described. However, one of the experts I talked to in the story, he mentioned something interesting. He said that, so we had the pandemic era over the past two, three years where people were staying home and uh, online activities soared naturally. And now uh, people are coming back out and you see these uh, petty crimes, uh, break-ins, theft, mm. things like that. But this expert I talked to, he said um, it's very short-sighted, these crimes. Mm. It's not really thought out. Like, you know, you can't just go out into Ginza and uh, <laughs> smash and grab a, uh, that was a watch shop, right? I think, yeah. I guess yeah. so. And expect to be uh, not caught. In full view of dozens of yeah. recording cell phones. And the expert said that perhaps, you know, the several years, uh, the pandemic era and people just staying inside, it sort of numbed their sense of, you know, what it takes to commit a crime and what entails uh, in the aftermath of committing a crime. Hmm. So a sense of reality, perhaps, has it eroded? And that was an interesting sort of perception or opinion I heard um, among the expert I talked to. Um, not sure if it's correct or not, but uh, perhaps it has something to do with these crises. And finally, um, I think we shouldn't forget that the uh, number of crimes committed by the younger generation aren't really on the rise. Actually, they've been decreasing over the years, I oh, think. Really? Yeah. However, that's not the, uh, the impression your everyday Japanese person would, would have if they're watching the uh, TV shows and watching uh, the news where, where they play up these crimes. Mm. So there's a big gap between uh, public perception towards crime and what's actually happening. Last year, we did see a small bump in the number of crimes recognized, around 5%. Next year, is that going to continue? We don't know. My guess is, considering the uh, the drop in crime uh, during the early years of the pandemic, we might see the rebound continue for some time. Mm -hmm. However, I can't imagine uh, the crime rate to uh, go up back up significantly over the next uh, years, uh, primarily due to the demographics and the police presence. Right. Well, Alex Martin, thanks again for coming back on Deep Dive. Thank you, Sean. My thanks again to Elizabeth Beattie, Tadasu Takahashi, and Alex KT Martin for coming on this week's show. I'll put links to their stories in the show notes. But please, stop by japantimes.co.jp to read even more of their work. Elsewhere in the news this week, it was pretty hot in Tokyo today. Did you turn on your air conditioner? If you did, then that might not bode well for your bills this summer. On Tuesday, the government approved another electricity price hike, which comes as inflation in other sections of the economy also continues to be a problem. Depending on who your energy provider is, you could be in for a considerable hike, the lowest being a 14% increase from TEPCO, and the highest being a 42% hike from the Hokuriku Electric Power Company, or Rikuden, which serves Toyama, Ishikawa, and the northern parts of Fukui and Gifu prefectures. Time to buy that kid's pool for the balcony to keep cool. In the meantime, you can help us pay our bills by telling a friend about the show and leaving us a rating or review on your preferred podcasting platform. Deep Dive is produced and edited by Dave Cortez with writing and research from Jason Jenkins. The outgoing track was written and produced by Oscar Boyd, and our theme song is by the Japanese musician 4L. Until next time, I'm Sean McKenna. Potsukare-sama. <laughs>